welcome to Protect Our Past, where we value the historic identity of Cape Cod and the islands and are implementing solutions to turn the demolition tide around because we care. We really care about history and this planet, and you'll learn today why they go together. I'm Ellen Briggs, founder and president of this nonprofit organization. And Matt Holen is our co-host, certainly my favorite co-host. Oh, thanks. Uh, he's here with me, and we are super excited about today's guest. Oh my gosh, what an honor. Hi, Matt. I, I want you to introduce him, but um, it's officially now fall. fall. We're yeah. in the fall, and time just flies. We're having a good time. I, I know. Guess. As Ernest Hemingway said, best of all, he loved the fall. Okay, I'm going to remind myself of that in winter for sure. <laughs> so the Cape is less crowded again, and that's one of the big pluses for me. It's a but great time of the year to be here. Would you please introduce Absolutely. yourself well, and first, our guest? Yeah, uh, so I'm Matt Holden. I am uh, co-hosting here with my partner in partner crime, my partner in partner pop crime, uh, Ellen Briggs. Uh, delighted to be here again in the WOMR studios and to be uh, a valued member of the WOMR community. Today, we are privileged to have Mike's, Mike Jackson. Mike is a noted preservation architect who really likes to refer to himself as an eco-preservationist. So we're going to let Mike explain that. Hey, Mike, I, I understand you're um, joining us today from uh, the land of Lincoln, Illinois. Yeah, I live here in Springfield, Illinois, which I, where I've been for 30-some years and been very active in the preservation community as the state historic preservation architect and then later the head of the state historic preservation office. So, But I, I have deep roots across the country. I lived on the East Coast for five years. And when I think about my journey, I did really have to, to go back in my eco-architecture beginning to Earth Day 1970. I was an architecture student on the campus of the University of Illinois celebrating, you know, I had a green flag we made. We made an American flag with green and white stripes on it and talked about eco-architecture. Unfortunately, or fortunately, after that, my career took me into historic preservation, and I really dug deep into the historic preservation ethic. But somewhere around the 1990s, I started to connecting the dots between historic preservation and environmental stewardship. Mm -hmm. And I thought that they had much in common. Uh, conservation was a word we both used together. And I joined the U.S. Green Building Council, and I got dismayed because they were too focused on new construction. Uh -huh. And I thought, we needed to think more about building reuse. And uh, fortunately, there's another organization that I was active with, and it's called the Association for Preservation Technology. And they were really, I'll call them the geeks of the old building world, the people who really ask the tough questions, the science of buildings, conservation techniques, and in uh, around 2000, we formed a new committee on sustainable heritage, and it really started to jumpstart the modern technical research on the eco-value of building reuse. So we challenged the green community of green designers, and ultimately, in 2011, the National Trust for Historic Preservation published an important study called The Greenest Building, the environmental build benefits of building reuse. And I pretty much got myself on the speaking circuit on that topic for about 10 years, really promoting this idea that not only is it good to reuse buildings, but it's the, the greenest building is the one that you already, it already exists. That's what we like wow. to say, the one in front of you. Yeah. 
And you yeah. have said so much, but I, I want to zero in on this last part, which is the greenest building is the one that's still standing. Could you explain that to everybody who's listening? Yeah, well, it's interesting because when we started our whole science investigation in this, we came up with the term embodied energy. And it was really about, we tried to calculate what was the embodied energy of an old building. And we came to realize that the embodied energy in the old building is already there. You don't need it. But where the issue was, was the embodied energy in a new building. And there was lots of new science from the green industry about what building used the least amount of energy to build. But when we did the map on it, all the energy you use to build a new building is the upfront carbon. Mm -hmm. That's what it takes to build something now. And it's concrete basements and all the transportation costs that make a building. And so basically, a new home comes with a front-loaded carbon impact. And you might get some reduction in operational energy over time. But the upfront carbon is now. So we're at a stage where we want to reduce carbon in our buildings as fast as we can. And we can't build our way to sustainability. We've got to conserve our way to sustainability. I like that, Alan. It doesn't mean we're off the hook. You can't build your way to sustainability. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and basically climate action programs across the country pretty much all put building retrofits for energy reduction as one of the key things that every climate action program has to do. Because, you know, if we replaced every building in the world and made it zero fossil fuel, the upfront carbon would just be tremendous. So we've got to work on the existing buildings. What about the older building that's still standing? Uh, well, and then, then people the, will say, well, gee, it's not smart. It's not a smart building. How do you respond to that? Well, again, we, just because it's old doesn't mean we're off the hook and we don't have to do anything. And we can't, we can't just say we save the embodied energy by reusing it. We need to be part of the solution. And a new term of art that I'll throw out for everyone is what we call the deep energy retrofit. And that's the whole idea that renovating your historic home so that you, again, decarbonize it to remove it from as much as possible the use of fossil fuels is the approach. But it doesn't mean that every old building is going to be as perfect as a new one might be. Uh, But if we get to 70 to 80 percent as good as a new building would be in operational energy, we can offset that with the new renewable energy sources that are offsite. There's a lot of, unfortunately, confusion in the marketplace about where's the best place to spend your money as an historic homeowner. And I know this comes up a lot. People go, well, the first thing I want to do is replace my windows and put solar collectors on the building. And actually, those are not the fastest return on your investment compared to reducing the use of energy through more efficient equipment or more efficient envelopes. And what I really tell people to do first is to get an energy audit. Let's engage the new generation of energy conservation professionals who aren't just selling one product. And I think that's the problem we have in the marketplace is the guy who's selling the windows tells you that it's 100% better than an old window. But that may not be that important compared to some other investment. So you gotta depend upon science a little better than just what the uh, salesperson is telling you. Mm-hmm. Mike, you mentioned at the start of the program that you've taken this on the road um, and sure. have had speaking engagements. Are there 
parts of the country where this resonates more than others. Um, I'm going to assume it resonates maybe a little more here in the Northeast compared to other areas simply because we're older than other parts of the country. Well, certainly where there are more older buildings, there's more interest in this. But if I had a sense of where are some of the leading communities on kind of working with environmental building reuse, it's typically university communities where there's a whole cadre of people and mm -hmm. science professionals. And probably one of the best is Boulder, Colorado. Uh, the Rocky Mountain Institute is there, which is one of the original think tanks on energy conservation and the future carbon reduced economy. And Boulder, Colorado had a green building ordinance before other towns. They have a cost benefit issue on deconstruction that basically you can't just tear a building down and throw it all away. You have to divert it from landfill. So they have very strong restrictions on that. So there they've really turned the science into public policy, probably in advance of other parts of the country. And we can learn from those examples. How about in places like Madison, Wisconsin, or some of the other Big Ten towns, university towns? Actually, actually one of the examples I show frequently is a project from 15 years ago in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh -huh. And it's a, basically a net zero retrofit of a folk Victorian house that basically did a super insulated envelope, did some solar panels, and did a geo-exchange system in the ground a ground source geo-exchange system. And the rest of the stuff they did on the house was conventional preservation, uh, ceiling painting and proper treatment. And, you know, nothing about it looks unusual, but uh, they got to net zero. And uh, it's a great replicatable model. That's great. Ellen, you look like you're about to ask something. I have lots of questions <laughs> running through my head. You know me well. Um, I would like to get back to the actual... Um, energy costs. Well, first of all, I just want to compliment you and the other scientists who have quantified the eco-destruction of teardowns and new builds. Bravo to you all. It gives us some real substance to, to argue the, that it is better to, you, you, there is a better option in restoring an historic house. Um, but one thing I would like to know is what what is the damage do we do the planet when we just tear down an historic building? Well, sure. The, clearly, the impact of throwing something away is waste, you know, and I, I've been dismayed to the degree that the eco-value equations gave you points if you diverted the waste from the landfill, but it didn't give you points for reusing the building in the first place. So I think that the green building standards have actually been bias towards new construction, which is a mm -hmm. problem. But we don't want to waste stuff. That's the inherent idea of reuse. And I think our society has had this term reduce, reuse, recycle for a long time, which was pushed by the single plastic use people. And for the building industry, I think there's a broader term, and that's reduce, reuse, retrofit, and respect. So let's you know, think about how much do we really need? Reuse things that we can, you know, how big does it need to be? And, you know, what, what amount do we need? And then for me, it's the retrofit, which is the energy efficiency. And lastly, I throw into the equation respect, which is this whole idea of authenticity of the old building and respect responds to that historic character. But it's a, it's a tricky equation. Mm -hmm. Every part of an old building isn't necessarily historic. 
the 1970s kitchen in an 1870s house is probably not an historic part of that. Right, house. all the avocado-colored appliances can probably yeah. go. But the, <laughs> but the 1920s front porch might be. You know, that may have be old enough to actually be part of history. And so that change over time, what happens when you're dealing with it? Mm-hmm. And you and the East Coast, you're dealing with 200-year-old buildings. So, so that's where we all benefit from having someone with the knowledge of historic buildings and the what I'll call the authenticity evaluation mm-hmm. and making that part of your your story when you approach a project. And so, that's great because we've got a new generation of preservation professionals that are mm-hmm. part of that understanding. So, Mike, I, I have a question for you. So, you know, Protect Our Past is still kind of in a uh, nascent state, and it's definitely a grassroots effort. And I think the challenge that we have is is getting the word out. And any any thoughts, words, guidance on how we can communicate this out. So as you said before, turning policy into public policy. And because I think a lot of our messaging sometimes falls on deaf ears, uh, particularly with the general contracting community. Well, I want to applaud the protect our past for your effort to use videos. You know, you're Mm -hmm. producing new programming. You've got great content. You've got a great team to produce this. So you're using the new tool of today, and then you can tie that into social media, but you're using this idea of showing people solutions in real time with the video and live and comments, etc. And I know I'm part of that. So I certainly want to applaud you for taking it on. But I, I must say, in my first meeting with you and looking at all the films that you've done, I said, Oh, my gosh, I think you guys have the genesis here of taking preservation on film and telling a bigger story. And I threw out the idea, why don't you do a preservation film festival? And hmm. uh, I want to say I, I think Ellen. this idea has been resonating with you. Yeah, we have Ellen, you to thank Ellen, for did that. Did you uh, hear what I said? Yeah, I, I mean, we all sort of bow down and we think hear your name because you, uh, you did at, suggest that at a f- uh, film, a creative team meeting when we were talking about the films we're doing, and we all just sort of didn't take a breath because we all knew this is exactly what we need to do and yes everybody listening look forward to october 14th at the orphan in chatham because we will launch thanks to mike's suggestion the first ever preservation film festival anywhere uh and it's going to be right here on the cape and we will uh showcase our new film life rings of which mike is very much a part of um so you everyone can look forward to that these films are 30 minutes. They're not two hours or three hours or an hour and a half, but we do. We will probably play our other film, which we did last year, which is Love Letter to Cape Cod, because two, the two really go together. But um, we had a wonderful time working on this film, it's not, and uh, we're really much looking forward to showing it to everyone. Again, we have Mike to thank for this. Right, and Ellen, this is probably a good time to remind folks, uh, WOMR listeners, where they can get more information about Protect Our Past. Yeah, www.protectourpast.org, and on there you'll find everything you need to know about us, and you'll also be able to have access to the film Love Letter to Cape Cod and our pop reels which are really fun little tidbits of history and stories uh, on the Cape. And they are, what, 60 seconds, 90 mm-hmm. seconds, so much long, and they're on YouTube as well. Uh, and we have solutions that we're working on. Who do you call catalog when you're having to restore a house? Because 
I have been restoring a, a windmill that you all know about, and it's. I would have loved to have had that catalog to help know. It's like who Pop Ghostbusters. <laughs> yeah, right. And we also have send people out, um, experts, architects, uh, to look at older houses and educate people what they have before they decide what to do with it, hopefully not tear it down. Mm-hmm. It's education, and it's fun. We meet the most interesting people, including our guest, Mike Jackson. Right. And folks, um, while you're visiting the website, don't forget, uh, you have the option to become uh, a friend, friend of POP. Yeah, and they help support these films. Uh, and other solution projects that we have on the docket. And so, we'll take yeah. any amount in the offering plate. Yeah, sure. It's um, It starts really at 25 and goes up at whatever's comfortable for you. We don't want to make this an elite organization. It's for everyone because we all care about histori- history, hopefully. That's right. Everybody can pitch in. Yep, 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 yep. So back to Mike. Um I am, I want to go back to one of your four words, reduce, reuse, re, recycle, and no, re, I'm sorry, reduce, reuse, restore, Retrofit and, and respect. Retrofit. How's that for alliteration? Man, oh man, I thought I knew this, right? Thank you. <laughs> sorry, Mike. The four R's. The four, the four R's. R's. Let's start with reduce. Let's encourage people about the value of reducing. You know, it's interesting about the house size today. You know, the average American house seems to be increasing in size while the average American family is decreasing in size. And then at the other end, you have this tiny house movement, which is really a camper. But I'm thinking that maybe the 1,600-foot Cape Cod is the house of the future. Mm -hmm. Big enough to live in comfortably, you know, that what's the scale of the family, you know, can we add on a wing or something like that? But uh, when you look at over time, you know, it really does come down to that. How big a house do we need? You know, I think it's kind of interesting that, you know, Warren Buffett, one of the wealthiest people in the world, still lives in his 1960 ranch house he built at the beginning of his career. You know, and he's never changed it and, you know, kept it up and lives in that scale. And so, you know, he's basically saying, how much house do you really need? And uh, I was somewhat disturbed a couple of years ago when one of, a noted Hollywood actor and green preservation advocate tore down his 1960s house to replace it when his daughter became a teenager. And he said, oh, I just need a bigger house because I've got a teenager in the house. Um, and I thought that, you know, these sons disconnected messages because it really does start with assessing, you know, how much do we really need to live? Hmm. Well, I'm all about that. Um, I feel like the family has been separated. In fact, I'll tell a quick story. I had a friend who built a 30,000 square foot house with two children and uh, nearly killed them just to build it. But once they did and lived in a couple of years, they sold it because they lost touch with their kids entirely and it was not good. So they sold it and built a smaller house and lived happily ever after. Mm -hmm. Funny how that works. I have a similar story, Ellen. It was a couple that had renovated an 8,000 square foot building and turned it into this sort of big mega thing and I did a tour when they were done, and upstairs on the second floor was this little 150-square-foot little alcove that looked out over the room. And the woman of the house said, this is where I spend all my time. This is my favorite part of the house. And they sold it like a year later and moved into something different. It wasn't about the big room. It was about the comfortable space. Yeah. Small is comfortable, usually. You just don't yeah. need so much stuff. All right, reuse. Well, let's 
pretty obvious. The, and, you know, the environmental benefit of replacing something is generally far less. The benefit is there when you reuse it instead of replacing it. You, know, all, you avoid all the cost of making something new. And we in the preservation business are reuse professionals. And there aren't really another group of reuse building advocates. You know, there's not like an American society of building reusers other than historic preservation. So we're, we're, I sometimes say preservationists are the tail of the tail wagging the dog of building reuse. Well, we're going to try. There's a lot of it going on, but we're the only ones really strongly advocating for this. Well, we're here to support that. We're going to do what we can. Uh, Retrofit? Well, that's really about this idea of making existing buildings more energy efficient. Decarbonization is kind of the new term of today as we want to reduce the use of fossil fuels in our houses and homes and buildings and put use more renewable resources. And I talked a bit about that before, but it's a complicated thing to do, and we will all benefit if we use more energy conservation professionals in making assessments rather than just uh, using the product salesperson. Good point. And then the last is respect, a word that I feel is lost, period. So I'm so delighted you've added that. Yeah, and it's really about this idea of having a sense of authenticity when we renovate. And it's not just about design. It really starts with understanding your house and what is it that you have that conveys the period of its significance and character. And and it's not everything in the house. We can replace the furnace and the boiler and that stuff without any angst about losing authenticity, but uh, let's keep the, the important parts that convey the sense of history. Mm-hmm. Mike, I have a question for you. What is your impression of the film Life Rings? I was hoping you could elaborate on that. Well, I want to start with something that kind of impressed me when I got to Cape Cod, and I'd never been there before, and I'd heard a lot about it. And after driving around for a couple of days, it became very obvious to me that Cape Codders have a strong sense of their architectural identity because virtually all the housing stock has this simple forms, has the use of the weathered gray wood shingles, the cedar shingles of that era, mm-hmm. the white painted trim. And, and it's like, it's just a commonly understood feeling for everybody that this is the aesthetic, this is the way Cape Codders live. And it's not imposed by regulation. It's not required. It's something that's evolved because everybody gets this idea of a a unique community identity. And boy, is that rare in America. You know, so I was really just so pleased to see this idea that everybody has kind of accepted this idea of what's the character of the building stock. And I can, the only other place I think that even comes close to that is Santa Fe, New Mexico, where it's really imposed by regulatory ordinances. And in your case, it's just evolved naturally. So that was pretty pleasant to see this idea that Cape Codders have a sense of their identity that's uh, distinctive mm-hmm. architecturally. Yeah, I remember when you said that, I was driving you around and I thought, wow, I, you know, it's so nice to have a, a, someone from outside come in, especially with your knowledge, and, and give a whole fresh understanding of what we're doing or uh, help define what it is that we all feel and experience. So I thank you for that as well. Um, one, one thing I'd like to be sure we cover is the wood, that um, the value of old wood versus new wood in terms of maintaining the structure. Could you comment on that quickly before we run out of time? Oh, yeah. I mean, 
in terms of the, the structural systems of our buildings, our ancestors, when they built, used wood that came from old growth trees, and they have a much tighter level of growth rings than what I call today trees grown on steroids. So mm-hmm. the old growth lumber both has an architectural character to it, but it's really, it's, it's density, it's much more resistant to water penetration and rot. So old growth wood is far superior to modern wood for durability. And not, not necessarily stronger, but just its durability and resistance to moisture. And that's the key thing. And we find there's a, now a premium for that in use. And we've even reached a point where now they're salvaging old logs that have sunk in various places of the world to find old growth logs that no one had used for hundreds of years because they have that value. And we're not making old growth lumber. You know, we're not growing any more old trees to use. So that that is not available. So every time we throw away something like that, it's not replaceable in kind. Mike, and when did the... I'm sorry to interrupt you. When, when did this whole trend start with this quote-unquote fast-growth wood? Um, I, I guess it was post-World War II when the building explosion yeah, occurred. In general, as yeah, we, I mean, we, we advanced the science of plantation growth trees and trying to you know, allow trees to grow faster. And there's certain uses for that kind of wood. But for everyone who's been following the story of the Notre Dame Cathedral, mm-hmm. they had to scour all over France to find old-growth oak trees to get the exact kind of old-growth lumber to recreate the timber frame of the top. And they literally scoured the entire country to try and find enough trees to come up with that, to put it back the way it was. And they had the resources to do that uh, because that stuff is rare. And, you know, so don't throw away the rare things when we can. And uh, particularly uh, interesting to me is, of course, the windows. Oftentimes windows were made in the early 18th century or 19th century with that old growth lumber. And so it's available in our buildings. But And, you know, we are replacing windows that have lasted for centuries and placing them with windows that will last for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big advocate for secondary windows, storm windows, to you know, instead of replacement windows mm-hmm. because of that. Yeah. Uh, Ellen, our programming time is getting small once again. It's amazing when we get on a roll, time flies. Yeah, we have such a good time with our guests, and, and especially, Mike, uh, you're so interesting, and we could go on and on and on with more questions, so we may have to have you back. But everybody will get to meet Mike at the Preservation Film Festival on October 14th at the Chatham Orpheum, so get I your tickets. Wait. It's going to be amazing. It really is. And, and Mike is... Uh, we're going to drag you up so you can talk to people, Mike. We did that last time you were here, and you were wonderful. So we're going to just Ellen's get ready. And Ellen's going to wear the Life Rings uh, costume, oh, so we, we don't know we what it is one? yet. But oh, yeah. gosh. I just, uh, <laughs> I like the sound of rings, but I don't know Well, better wearing. than jumping out of a cake, right? Yeah, well, that's that's your job, right? <laughs> I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I and think it's my turn for the quote this yes. week. Uh, and, and again, and thank you, Mike. It's just been so wonderful to have you with us, and we look forward to seeing you soon. Uh, thank but, you for letting me part of the Cape Cod scene. Enjoyed well, my trip. Yeah, tonight. thank you, thank you, Mike. This we're not great. we're not done with you, Mike. We're going to have a lot of fun ahead, so hang in there. I look forward to it. And so, why don't you go ahead and finish up with our quote, folks? We always close every program with a quote by John Solhill. In the end, a society will be f- defined not only by what it creates, but what it refuses to destroy. Think about it. Until next time, see you soon. <laughs>